Well, good morning. This is a family service. We've uh, worshipped, we've gathered around the Lord's table, and it's good to welcome some friends from Columbia Bible College. Dr. Brian Bourne, the president of Columbia Bible College, is a really good friend of mine, a good brother. Uh, One of the things I love doing is praying with him. He's a man that loves Jesus, loves the church, and uh, wants to see the church living on mission. You'll hear a little bit about that in a minute. He's married, married to Teresa, Brian and Teresa. They served in uh, Botswana for 12 years as missionaries. That's where we first got to know each other. And uh, then for the last 12 years has been a professor at Columbia Bible College. And he's been president for the last three and has served really well. So thank you for coming, Brian. Let's welcome him. Thanks again, Ray. Yeah. Great to be here. Just want to pray for him as... Uh, He opens the word for us. Father, we just thank you for your goodness to us, and we thank you for bringing your servant this morning. We pray that Brian would just experience the peace of your spirit and freedom in your spirit as he proclaims your word. We pray that he would proclaim your word boldly and clearly, and may it land on soft soil in our hearts. May we hear it and apply it to our lives guided by your spirit, and then live it, Lord, for your glory. And so we submit our brother into your hands, we submit ourselves, and we ask you to teach us, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks again, Ray. It is great to be here this morning. And uh, I, was, I was looking at the announcements, and any teenagers here that are feeling a little concerned, you know, I, I, that... We really love you. You're not monsters. You're you're wonderful. You're wonderful. But sometimes there are challenges, right? Anyways, uh, having raised three kids uh, and now starting to have grandkids, looking forward to seeing when they become teenagers as well. It's going to be awesome. So, greetings to you all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is great to be here and to have the opportunity to serve. And what I want to share with you this morning has been percolating in my mind for some time. And I have felt compelled to challenge all of us who call Jesus Lord, who refer to Jesus as our Lord, to move to a new level of discipleship. Increasingly, I find myself reflecting on what is taking place in the world around us. And as I mentioned, maybe that has something to do with the fact that I'm a fairly new grandfather. But actually, I think more of it has to do with the, the fact that I've had the great privilege over the last 12 years to train a number of young men and women who have gone into cross-cultural mission service. So almost daily, I'm receiving praise and prayer updates from some of our grads who are serving all around the world. I hear from Paris, from Istanbul, from Mexico, from Morocco, from Delhi, from Manila. And what is exciting to me is to hear about the way God is calling people to himself, calling Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and animists to follow Jesus Christ. This excites me. It also drives me to my knees when I read these, prayer, these praise and prayer letters because I hear about spiritual opposition, I hear about disease and violence. So when I hear what God is doing, I'm hopeful. And yet at the same time, 
I am also concerned about the church in North America. Too often it seems that we are almost overwhelmed by the forces of our culture. Our obsession with wealth and celebrity. Our almost unthinking adoption of new technologies. The polarization in politics. And the uncaring compromise with the beliefs and values of our society. The world around us is constantly seeking to mold us into a certain image, and it is doing a fantastically good job of it. Coming at us from all angles, whether it's print, web, video, music, movies, and advertising in all of its forms, our culture actually has far more resources at its disposal than the church could ever even imagine. The world is actually discipling us in a way that is fundamentally opposed to the purposes of Jesus. What's the result of this barrage of cultural influences? Let me give you one example. In November, I read the following comments in a Christian periodical. And make sure you hear that. This was in a Christian periodical. The author was responding to an earlier article that had been written to challenge Christians to see the Syrian refugee crisis as an opportunity for the church to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to share the gospel in word and in action. This person didn't like that call and they wrote the following, I become frustrated when I read or hear anything about spreading the gospel in the hope of converting others. And then, to add on top of that, she, she wrote, she did not want her son to grow up thinking he needs to tell other people about Christ. This was in a Christian magazine. This is what happens when we listen to the world around us instead of to the voice of Jesus. If ever there was a time in history for the church to step forward in word and action, it is now. We have a good news message. Jesus, our Lord, of Sa- Lord and Savior, is the Prince of Peace. Our world is crying out for peace, and true peace can only be found in Christ. As disciples of Jesus, we need to have a humble confidence in the power of God to draw people to himself. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. Every semester, I teach a course called Church and Mission to our first-year students at Columbia. During one of our first-class periods, we study Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, to chapter 10, verse 20. And we work at answering one key question. What was Jesus teaching his disciples about living on mission in this particular passage? Now, we don't have time today for a large group, for a small group discussion, and I don't think it would work terribly well in this context. So I am simply going to give you five key subjects that we see uh, unpacked in this particular passage. The first of these is the model for mission. The second, the motivation for mission. The third, mobilization for mission. And fourth, the message for mission. And then finally, the means for mission. Let's read Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 to 10, verse 8. And a little later on, I will complete the, uh, the reading of this particular passage. 
Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Let me just pray briefly. Lord God, may your word penetrate deeply into our hearts. May your Holy Spirit have your way with us so that we would be faithful as your disciples. So if you were in my class at Columbia and I asked you the question, what was Jesus teaching his disciples about living on mission? How would you answer? Well, I hope that you would begin with what we might call a very Sunday schoolish type of answer and simply say, Jesus. When Jesus called his disciples to live on mission, he didn't ask them to do anything that he himself was not already doing. He is our model for mission. He taught and proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. He cared for the needy. He healed diseases and cast out demons. And then he gave his disciples instructions to do the exact same thing. He called them to meet the needs of the whole person. Spiritual, physical, emotional, relational. One of my favorite verses in scripture is John chapter 1 verse 14. The message paraphrase brings out the meaning of this verse powerfully. The word, that is Jesus Christ, became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. We could spend days going through that particular verse line by line, but the point I want to make this morning is simply this. Jesus shows us how to live on mission. He became one of us. He humbled himself and sacrificed himself in order to seek, to serve, and to save the lost. I'm not going to say much more on this point except to give you one of my favorite quotations. And it comes from a 19th century missionary by the name of Henry Martin. He once said, The spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. And the closer we get to Jesus 
the more intensely missionary we will become. Let me repeat that quote. The spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. And the nearer, the closer we get to Jesus, the more intensely missionary we will become. Amen? Jesus is the ultimate missionary. His whole life on earth was intended to reconcile humanity with God. To defeat the power of sin and evil at the cross. And then to overcome death by his resurrection. To live on mission requires us to follow Jesus as closely as we possibly can. I'm going to move on quickly to our second point. What is our motivation for mission? Here again, Jesus is our model. The passage tells us that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The Greek word translated as compassion is, in this passage is really quite expressive. It literally means that if one is moved in your inward parts to feel it in your gut. Jesus looked around at the people and it gripped him. He couldn't simply look at the crowd and ignore their pain. His response was not, you know, whatever, who cares, let them take care of themselves. He was compelled to act. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 wrote, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Christ's love for us compels us to live for Christ and then to become his ambassadors of reconciliation to a lost and hurting world. Have you ever felt like you just had to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone? I hope you've had that experience. Personally, I find this compulsion takes place when I really know people when I discover what's going on in their lives, when their pain, their frustration, their confusion simply cannot be ignored. I felt it during our years in Botswana. When I think back 20 years ago, we were living in the midst of the HIV AIDS pandemic and we saw many people dying on a regular, even daily basis. We saw people who were caring for the sick and dying and they needed hope and that hope was only to be found in Christ Jesus. Today I find a similar, I feel a similar compassion for many of the young adults that I encounter. The description of the people of Jesus' day as harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, sounds so much like millions of Canadians. Our culture has told them that absolute truth does not exist, that everything is relative. There are no rights and wrongs. Just decide for yourself. Media and educational leaders claim that all religions are the same and that they're basically worthless. Pop stars proclaim that sexual morals and even one's sexual identity is simply self-determined. Do whatever feels good and don't worry about the consequences. American sociologist Christian Smith has put it this way. 
They can believe and do and think whatever they want to. And no one else has any right to question them, much less judge them. There isn't any ultimate truth. So choose whatever you want to believe as long as you don't hurt someone else. It's a radical live and let live relativism. And what's the result? Skyrocketing levels of anxiety, depression, drug abuse, and even suicide. There is a growing apathy, a feeling like, who cares and so what? It really doesn't matter anyway. But I want to say this morning, brothers and sisters, it does matter. Because this is about life. Life in the present and life eternal. Jesus said the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. I hope and pray that God will so grip our hearts that we simply cannot ignore the harassed and helpless who are living all around us. They need hope and that hope is only found in Jesus Christ. As we move to our third point, we move from motivation to mobilization. Jesus felt the need and then he called his disciples to pray. He didn't call them to pray for a harvest, but for harvesters. And I find that really interesting. Often I hear people pray that God will open the hearts of people around them to to listen and to accept the gospel. And that's a good prayer. That's a biblical prayer. Don't stop praying those prayers. But I don't hear it often enough that we actually pray for harvesters. Jesus said that the harvest was plentiful. The problem was not that people were unwilling to listen. It was that there weren't enough disciples sharing the good news of the kingdom. We have bought into the idea here in Canada that people do not want to hear. But I don't believe that's true. Maybe there are some that are closed to the gospel. And probably far too often we have messed up the message But I think the bigger problem is that we simply do do not believe that the harvest is plentiful. Eugene Peterson may stretch it a bit in his paraphrase, but in the message he's written something that I think is, is pretty significant. When he paraphrases Matthew chapter 10 verse 1, this is how he puts it. The prayer was no sooner prayed than it was answered. Jesus called 12 of his followers and sent them into ripe fields. He gave them power to kick out the evil spirits and to tenderly care for the bruised and hurt lives. I love the way he puts this. The prayer was no sooner prayed than it was answered. The disciples became the answer to the prayer for harvesters. And this doesn't mean that they rashly headed out into the harvest in their own strength. That would have been a crucial mistake. When Jesus gave his, sorry, when Jesus called his disciples, he gave them his authority, Jesus' own authority to drive out evil spirits and to, and to heal diseases. The same point is made at the end of Matthew's gospel when he commissioned his disciples. We know this passage well, Matthew chapter 28, 19, 18 to 20. Jesus says there, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to all that I have commanded you. And then what does Jesus say at the end? And I will be with you even to the end of the age. On our own, we can do nothing. But with Christ's authority, all things are possible. We see this to be true throughout Scripture. Scripture. Recently, I was working through the story of David and Goliath once again. We're familiar with the story. Puny David coming up against the mighty giant Goliath. The odds are completely against him. What could David do? His response, the battle is the Lord's. And then he goes on to say, I come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty. I come to you with the authority of God Almighty. And once I strike you down, the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. As I was reading this passage, it struck me. This is actually a missions story. Now, that might be a little bit hard pill for some Mennonites to swallow with our nonviolent theology. We struggle, I think, with this story anyways. But think about it. What David was saying, this victory isn't about me conquering a, a giant. It's so that the whole world will know that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is alive and real and powerful. It's a mission story. Amen? Tell your kids that. Mobilization of a group of disciples was Jesus' primary mission strategy. He prayed for those willing to enter the harvest field. And then he created a community. A small group of 12 men who had his authority. This was the beginning of the church. And he called them together for a specific purpose. To proclaim and to live out the kingdom of God. Which brings us to our fourth point. Jesus instructed them as follows. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. It's a radical message. As we've already seen, this was the same as Jesus' message in ministry. It's what Jesus was doing. Elsewhere in the the gospel, we're told that Jesus began his ministry by announcing that the kingdom of God had arrived. It was in the unique person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that God's reign was being made plain to see. God's reign is his kingly action in the world. It's his power at work. The kingdom of God is not so much a place, a geographical location that we will go to in the future. We sometimes equate it simply with heaven. And yes, heaven is our hope. That's where we want to go. But the kingdom of God is also speaking about the present. It's an experience that we get to participate in right now. To enter into God's kingdom is to accept an invitation to become active in God's mission in the world. Jesus was calling his disciples to announce the beginning of an era which would be characterized by the forgiveness of sin, physical healing, deliverance from demonic oppression, restoration of liberty, and the availability of God's blessings to all who would respond. 
That's why we need to realize that the disciples were not just to preach a message, but they were also to minister to the whole person. Living on mission means that we do the same. We pray for and we care for the poor, the sick, those who have been driven from their homes, the needy and the marginalized. But I want to make a real key point this morning. It is more than just good works and caring for people's physical needs. We clearly need to share the gospel of Jesus verbally. What were Jesus' first words in his command to his disciples? Preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Nobody is going to simply guess the gospel from our actions. They actually need to hear the words. It has become very popular in our day to use the words or to quote the words of St. Francis of Assisi. Although this quotation that I'm about to give you, it's questionable whether he even ever said it. But perhaps you've heard this quotation. Preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. You've heard that, I'm sure. Sounds very nice. Very Canadian. But I want to be clear. We live in a time and a place where it is extremely necessary to use words. In fact, I've told the students in my, my church and mission class that if they want to fail on an assignment, put that quotation in their assignment and I'll guarantee an F for them. <laughs> Set aside the rest of the world. Millions of people in Canada have never heard the good news of the kingdom clearly presented to them. They need to hear that Jesus, the Son of God, became fully human, lived a sinless life, was killed on a cross for us, and then rose from the dead three days later. They need to know that Jesus' death and resurrection opens the door for a reconciled relationship with God, forgiveness of sin, a transformed life, and victory over the grave. This is good news. Amen? Now, one last thing yet I want to add on this point. Don't be overly concerned by Jesus' command to focus on the people of Israel. He said to them, just go to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus clearly was not anti-Gentile or anti-Samaritan. If he was, we'd all be in big trouble. I don't think there's too many Jewish Christians here. We may have some in the, in the audience. But most of us are Gentiles. Good thing that the gospel is for us too. I think what Jesus was focusing on here is that the promises that had been given to the people of Israel. And so he was saying to the disciples, go to them first and make sure that they have heard this message. And I think the message for us today, or the lesson for us today, is that mission begins at home. There are some people who feel like, you know, they're all about missions overseas or in other countries, but they're unwilling to engage with the people who are living right around them and whom, with whom they work. I've sometimes said to my students, getting on an airplane never made anyone a missionary. It makes you a tourist or a guest. Becoming a missionary is to have the spirit of Jesus living within us, empowering us to engage the people that we come into contact with and sharing the good news with them. Well, I need to bring this sermon to a conclusion 
And to do so, it means that I'm going to skip over a bit of this text. I'm going to pick it up again in verse 16. So let me read. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. The means for mission. In other words, the ones who share this kingdom of God message are Jesus' spirit-filled disciples. A kingdom of God mentality requires a radically new way of looking at the world. And more importantly, it actually demands allegiance to a new king, Jesus Christ. And this will result in spiritual conflict. I don't say it may result in spiritual conflict. I rather say it will. To enter God's reign is a summons to engage in the war of the Lamb. Jesus suffered and faced persecution, and we too should expect opposition. The outcome of this battle is not in doubt, but we must understand that God's reign has not yet been fully made manifest in our world. In 1 John 5, verse 19, we read, We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know we are children of God, but the world, the, cult, the, the culture in which we live is permeated by the evil one. This is why we continue to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Some will not accept the message of God's kingdom and they will actively oppose our efforts. It's difficult, it's painful, but it's spiritual warfare. But what's really cool, when you look at this passage, Jesus tells his disciples to recognize that opposition can actually open doors for witness. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. As Canadian Christians, we have a hard time with opposition because we have been sucked into believing that safety and security, comfort and convenience should be our highest values. Safety and security, comfort and convenience. As a church, if we want to live on mission, we're going to have to challenge those cultural values. We need to learn to take risks. Brazilian author Paolo Colo once wrote, The ship is safest when it is in port. But that's not what ships were built for. We like safety, security, comfort, and convenience. I like those things. But that's not what disciples of Jesus were made for. Jesus said, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. 
What a powerful word. Spirit-filled disciples are the means for the message. Brothers and sisters, there are so many voices out there speaking fear into our lives. Fear sells. And it's easy to manipulate people who are blinded by fear. But as the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I want to conclude this, this uh, morning with a couple of stories. Recently, I was in uh, northern, kind of north central BC, and I was driving from Prince George to Vanderhoof. January, middle of January, it was interesting weather, all this kind of thing. I was pulling out of Prince George, and there was a fellow on the side of the road, First Nations fellow. And if you know anything about that road, it has a pretty bad reputation, especially uh, for women uh, who have been picked up hitchhiking and, and murdered. So, you know, I'd been kind of warned, you know, you just kind of drive it or whatever, but I was, I was driving out of town, and here was this guy standing in the freezing cold. And I drove by him, and immediately, the Spirit of the Lord just kind of gripped me. And it was like, turn around, pick him up. And I'm going, Lord, really? Am I, is that what I'm supposed to do? And I, you know, I had a little conversation with God for about 30 seconds or so, and then I, I was pretty clear. Okay, I'm turning around. Pick this guy up. And he was coarse. He was really thankful. It was cold and, and wet and everything else. And he got into the car, and we just started talking. And he'd had a tough life. He'd had a lot of really negative experiences in his life and with the church as well. But we had a long time. We had a good hour and a half just to talk in the car. And and I was able to share some of my experiences and what Christ has done in my life. And ended up taking him to Vanderhoof. And and we got to the other side. He was going on past there. Yeah, we got to the other side of town. And I just stopped and said, can I pray with you, Sonny? That's what his name is, Sonny. I said, can I just pray with you? And, and he said, yeah, I want you to pray. And so we prayed together. We just spent, and, and I look at this and I'm going, how many times am I driving past people? And, and really more often, how many times do we simply walk past people that Jesus wants us to connect with? The harvest is plentiful. Our problem in so many cases is fear. In the past couple of years, I've also had the privilege of becoming friends with a Turkish Christian whom I'm going to call Yigit because I want to preserve his identity for his own security. I've chosen the name Yigit because it means brave. He lived with us for three weeks in the fall of 2014, and during that time he shared his story with our family. Raised Muslim, he went through a deep depression in his early 20s. During that time, he contemplated suicide, but he cried out to what he didn't know if there was any God out there. He didn't, certainly didn't know the Christian God, but he just cried out, if there's some power that can save me, do so. God, in his wonderful grace, reached out to him, and he had a miraculous dream. And through that dream, he was led to some Turkish believers and they were able to lead him to faith in Christ and to to help deliver him from demonic oppression. Filled with joy, he began to share the good news with his family, with friends, and with anyone he met. A number of churches were planted and his evangelism efforts began to gain the attention of various Muslim authorities. 
Threatened with death on numerous occasions, he eventually had to endure a trial that lasted for four years. While he was on trial, two of his closest friends were martyred for their faith. And on the day of their murder, as he left the courtroom, there were 500 angry men outside that courtroom clamoring for his death. They were yelling at him, we're going to kill you too. He told me as he walked through that crowd, and the next day when he came back into the courtroom, this passage, these promises from Jesus, that's what he held on to. I will, I will make you my witnesses before kings and authorities. Don't worry about what you have to say. It will be the spirit of your father who speaks through you. Near the end of that trial, he and his family were offered the possibility of gaining a visa to a Western nation. Yigit told me that he was seriously tempted to take the offer. But he prayed through the night and he heard God telling him, you are a Turkish Christian. And for him, that was a clear message that he needed to stay and continue to live on mission in Turkey. He considers it a great blessing that he has been able to visit Canada. But he laments our lack of zeal for the gospel. He marvels over our buildings, our resources, our training opportunities. But he wonders why we seem so shy about sharing the good news of the kingdom. Now you need to realize he says these things in the nicest way possible. He would hate to offend anyone. But he is calling us to live on mission in the way of Jesus. And that's my challenge to us all today. Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. May we become the answer to that prayer in Jesus' name. Let's pray together. Lord God, we bow before you this morning and we recognize that you are a sovereign Lord, creator of the universe. You have saved us, you have redeemed us, you have set us free from the power of Satan and from sin. You have forgiven us and reconciled us to yourself and we bow before you and worship your most holy name. Lord God, we recognize that you have invited us to participate with you on mission so that people might experience life, life to the full. I pray for anyone here this morning who has not yet come into a saving relationship with you. And I pray, Lord God, that you would continue to draw them to you. If they sense that conviction in their heart today and they want to get right with you, I pray that they would go to someone that they know and that you would help them to make that commitment this day. For those of us who already have a relationship with you, may we be filled with your humble courage Humble because it's not us, it's you, Lord God. But courage because it is you. It is your Holy Spirit at work within us. May we have that humble courage to be your harvesters in a right field. God, you are great. And we worship you in, in all of your majesty. We pray this in the most powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Blessings on you all. Hope you have a most blessed week.